Hey, are you guys doing this weekend? Good. It's great to see you. My name is Sean Wood. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Seacoast. And it is great to be with you this weekend. If we've uh, never met, it's good to meet you. I want to say a welcome to those of you in Greenville. Just want to say, um, oftentimes um, during the week with what I do day-to-day operations here at Seacoast, I get to deal a lot with our campus pastors. And just want to say in Greenville to Pastor Ross, you guys have got a great man of God and a great campus pastor there. Got to uh, talk with him and to all of our campus pastors. Just amazing men. And we probably don't get the opportunity to say that as much as we can. I just wanted to give a shout out to Greenville. You guys are holding down the upstate and doing a great job at it. So uh, it's good to have all of you along uh, this weekend as well. Have you ever uh, missed an opportunity? Just kind of just realized after the fact, man, that was an opportunity that I had in my life and I completely missed it. Like how many, how many like 55 ish year olds? You don't have to raise your hands if you don't want to admit it, but we see the gray hair. So it's okay. 55 ish year olds in the house. If, if when you were 30 years old, if, if you would have taken, I mean, just eaten ramen noodles, squirreled away every bit of money that you could and gotten to about 30 to, you know, 35, somewhere in that neighborhood and had somehow put away about $10,000 in your savings, everything you had. And you had said, you know what? I'm going to take all of it and I'm going to invest it in this little company in 1984, started trading its stock at about $2 a, a, a share called Apple. And you just left it alone. I mean, never done anything with it, never looked at it again, just put it away, left it alone. If, if you would go cash out today, you would be able to be written a check for about $800,000 um, from that $10,000. Some of you missed that opportunity. How many of you missed? If you didn't miss that opportunity, we would like to talk with you afterwards. It'd be great um, if you didn't miss that opportunity. But opportunities, they are easy to miss. And you know, sometimes we see opportunities as problems. We see, we see them when they're in front of us for the very first time. We just see them as things that, as one author said, uh, problems are only opportunities with thorns on them. I mean, it's opportunities that are, they seem like it's, it's hard to do it or it's inconvenient or we just don't see what they really could be because you never know when an opportunity is going to come. In Acts chapter 24, which we're continuing in this weekend in this series that we're calling Arrested, and we've been looking at the life of Paul over the last few weeks, um, or over the whole chapter of the book, but the last few chapters, we've really been looking at his life when he was arrested and was going before trial after trial to be uh, falsely accused, and all this stuff is happening to him. And so now we're, we're looking at it, and we're seeing uh, in Acts chapter 24 that it really is a story or a chapter about missed opportunities. It's a story about just a, a, a bunch of people. And in fact, it's, it's lessons that we can learn from them. In fact, we called the, the weekend seven lessons we can learn from religious people, crooks, and a trial lawyer. So that should get interesting as, as we go along. Uh, but it's lessons that we can learn from people who just missed opportunities. Missed opportunities that would have paid off in unbelievable uh, ways. And I, and I want to dive in because we've got a ton to cover. And we're going to look at this chapter and kind of just, just tell the story. We'll just look at the story together. In fact, if you've got an outline sheet when you came in, on, on one side are those seven uh, lessons that we can learn. And on the other side is almost all of Acts chapter 24. It's uh, the first 26 verses there of it, so that you've got it right in front of you. We're not going to look at all of those verses, but I just wanted you to have it there um, so that you could study along. And if you uh, see this chapter, what it is is basically a story. And we're going to look at that story that kind of plays out like a, a bad episode of Law and Order. 
Well, I mean, I guess all episodes of Law and Order are bad episodes if Law and Order, but all it's a bad episode of Law and Order where there's just this seedy characters. I mean, people doing unbelievably crooked things. Um, lawyers get involved. People start throwing out accusations. In fact, if Hebrews chapter 12 is called the Hall of Faith, I think Acts chapter 24 would be the hall of scoundrels because we really see some seedy people. They truly live out uh, what Pastor Greg says sometimes, you know, is that everybody is good for something, even if it's to be a bad example. Uh, These guys really live that out in front of our eyes in this. There's uh, basically four characters, four main characters, and then a lot of bit players as well. Um, And a few of them we have to look back into Acts chapter 23 just to learn a little bit about them. And um, we're going to approach it a little differently, and then we'll just pull some principles out as we go along. So let's, let's just step right in. We're in 23 just for a few minutes. We left Paul um, last weekend when he had just stirred up a little theological debate. It made a lot of uh, people mad over this argument that he was having. And you can read more in, in 23 or, l- or listen to last weekend's message even, even better. And he stirs up this debate. And the debate gets so heated. You remember uh, Pastor Greg compared it to a, a Jerry Springer show. I mean, there's chairs flying. Things are going on. People are getting mad. And the, the Roman uh, leader in charge, Claudius, he decides that it's getting just a little bit too heated. And so he has Paul put away for safekeeping, put away for the night and says, hey, get this guy out of here. Things are getting bad. And, and let's put Paul away and, and keep him safe for a little while. And so that night, as Paul is is put away, his nephew learns that there's this plot going on. The the Jewish uh, men have gotten together and they've said, hey, let's do this. Let's go to Claudius and and let's tell Claudius that we want to hear some more from Paul. We really, we really, we want to hear him out. We want to dig a little deeper and kind of see what's going on. And, and so when he agrees to that, because he will, because what Claudius wants to do is get this thing done with, get it out of his sight. So he says, when they, when they agree with that, when Paul comes into public, we'll kill him. And so the, the leaders, of the, the religious leaders, they're together, and they're figuring out a way again to kill Paul. And so Paul's nephew goes to Claudius and tells him about this. And, and this is the cool thing. The, the Jewish men had taken an oath that they would neither eat or drink until Paul was dead. That's, I mean, that's some serious, I I don't know how long you guys go without eating or drinking. I can go a lot longer without drinking than I can eating, but I don't go very long without eating and drinking. And so they've taken this oath. We're not going to eat. We're not going to drink. We're serious about this till we kill Paul. Now, if you read ahead, you learn that was not the wisest thing they ever did. They got really hungry and thirsty um, because they took this oath that they wouldn't eat or drink until Paul was dead. And so we see these religious leaders and they are just up in a rage. They're just so angry. And why are they angry? They're angry because Paul is breaking the rules and Paul is doing things completely different than what they had always done. And the first principle that we can pull out from these first characters is don't let your religiosity overpower your servosity. Now the English majors in the room are going, wait a minute, that's not a word. You're right. It's not a word. I completely made it up. That's what you do when you have four-year-olds and one-year-olds in your house is you make words up. And I made this word up. And what this is, is servosity is what happens when serving and generosity meet each other. They, they date for a couple of years. They get married and they start to have children. That's it's serving and generosity coming together. And it's what they produce. And so what I'm saying here is don't let your religiosity overpower your servosity. 
You see, what God has called us to do is to serve and to be generous. And as I look at these religious leaders, what I see is people who were mean-spirited. They were angry. Religiosity is the opposite of serving and generosity. You see, stories like this are common in the New Testament. I mean, we see it all the time that religious people getting upset, getting mad and wanting to kill people, especially Jesus. You know, I mean, Jesus would do something. He'd break some of their rules. He would he would make them angry in some way. And when he would do that, they would get mad. They would plot. um, They would run around like uh, and just blowing hot air. They scream foul and they then they huddle together and they discuss what's going on about the rule breakers. And we see this over and over again, that it's just over and over. They're coming together. They're talking about how the people are breaking rules and they're getting up tight. And, And while they're doing this, they're not involved in the game. I mean, they're not out serving people. They're not out trying to figure out ways to love people more. The very people that God made. But instead, religious people are like referees. They don't score any points. They don't sweat. They don't play. They know nothing about the highs or the lows of the game. The only time anyone knows that they're there is when they scream foul or on a football game when someone accidentally tackles them, which is kind of funny when that happens. And then they just run around blowing their whistles and calling foul. And when they retire, no one cares. And see, I ask myself about this. I say, well, who are these religious people? I mean, these religious people that care more about their rules than God. In fact, it it seems like they're willing to break God's rules to do away with Paul. You know, they're willing to get angry. They're willing to to do whatever it takes to do away with Paul. And I ask myself, who are these people? I mean, what makes people be like that? What makes people do that? And and then I remember that it's me. It, It might be you. Because we're the religious people. You see, and if we're not careful... We're the ones who can be prone to religiosity and we forget about what God really put us here on the planet to do, to serve, to be generous. And we forget about all that and we start worrying about staying in the lines and obeying all the rules. Just obey the rules. It's like uh, Pastor Mark Driscoll calls it. It's like painting by numbers. And we say, here are the numbers. Here are the lines. Make sure you paint within them. As long as you paint within these lines, then you are a good religious person. And we can begin to lean into that so much that we forget that what God wanted something different. And you see, Paul saw that. He saw that he wanted something different. And I have to caution myself that not to lean into that because I'm very prone. I'm very good at setting up checklists and rules. I'm very good at deciding what it looks like to paint within the lines for me, but especially for you. And so I can very quickly put my religiosity over my serving, my generosity. God wanted more, and Paul saw that. So the religious people are mad again. And let's get back to our story. So Claudius hears about this plot to kill Paul and thinks, great, this is not going to look good on my watch. I mean, the truth is, if this goes down the way that the Jewish men were planning it, and Paul gets killed, at best, Claudius gets fired. And probably there's a good chance that Claudius would get killed because he lost control of the situation. So Claudius needs Paul to get out of Dodge and do it quick. And he needs it to be far as way as he can do it within the jurisdiction and and kind of the laws that go on. So he calls together, this is interesting, 470 Roman soldiers. 470. Paul was a pretty popular guy, wouldn't you say? 470 Roman soldiers come together to escort Paul to Felix's house along with a letter explaining the situation. 
And the letter, which is also found at the end of Acts chapter 23, basically says from Claudius to Felix, tag, you're it. The Romans are playing hot potato with Paul. They're like, hey, let's get this guy out of, out of our hair. I'll give him to you, Felix. So now we get into Acts chapter 24. So the soldiers deliver Paul to Felix. He, he reads the letter and surely he thought to himself, wow, Claudius, Thanks so much. Really appreciate you giving me this. The, the letter says, hey, this guy, I've, I've looked into it. He, he seems to be innocent. Um, but here, I'm going to give him to you because it seems like maybe this is in your jurisdiction. And here he opens the letter. He looks at it. And then he says, you know what? I'll just put off any kind of decision or hearing about this uh, until later. Give this attention uh, when your accusers show up, Paul. So we'll just kind of put you aside. We'll procrastinate a little bit, put you away. And when your accusers show up, then I'll hear you. And we get into verse 1. If you flip onto the back of your note sheet, you've got the scripture there, or you can turn in your Bible as well. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. Now here's what I notice here. After five days, Paul has been removed by 470 Roman soldiers to protect him, to to protect him from his troubles and to get him away. And it takes them five days in a non-technological, non-mass transit to, to figure out where he was sent to, catch up with him and be there right on his doorstep. Here's principle number two. You can't outrun your problems. They will always find you. Some of you, you have problems that have followed you around for a long time. Now, don't point because that would be rude. Some of your problems have come from others, like Paul. I mean, they, 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 you can't outrun them. You've tried. You, people have brought problems into your life, and you keep trying to move, and you go here, and you do this, and you change this, but you've never confronted the problem. Some of your problems have come from yourself and your, your unwillingness to deal with them like Claudius. And you still can't outrun them. You can't give away your problems to someone else to deal with. I know oftentimes for me, it's just it's my natural bent is to go, okay, who can I assign this problem in my life to? Who can I blame for it? And if I can't blame someone, is there any way that I could shift this problem over to someone else so that they can take care of it? But at some point, what we learn from Claudius and what we learn from Paul is that you have to deal and face your issues. You may have to have that confrontation that you don't want to have. You may have to say, I'm sorry, and apologize for something that you really don't want to. You may just have to work hard and get past the financial problems that have come into your life. And just to get past them, you have to face them. You see, we have to face our problems then chapter two, or, uh, verse 2, it says, And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, and this, this Tertullus guy. Now, what Tertullus is, is he is a hired gun. He's a trial lawyer who is a um, Hellenistic Jew. Basically, he was a Greek who had become a Jew so that he could um, so represent them in, in Greek court. And so he is there to say what he is paid to say. That's his only job. He, he is there to represent them and do whatever it takes. And so he starts in. He says, since you, uh, since through you talking to Felix, we enjoy peace and since by your foresight. Now, the funny thing is here, I did a little bit of research and this is flattery. I mean, this guy is turning on the schmoozing. And, and can't you just see it when someone is, is, is just flattering you? 
I mean, when they're just, they're just turning on the schmooze and they're, they're just working you over verbally to let you, to, to kind of butter you up. And that's what's happening here. He, he's starting to just flatter him and he's oozing with it. Because there was no peace. I mean, this was one of the most, uh, some of the most turmoil ever was in this part of the world. There was no foresight or wisdom. In fact, he was an, Felix was an awful ruler. He was terrible. And by the end of this chapter, we'll even see that he gets fired from his job. And so then this guy continues on, this flatterer. He says, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made. There was no reforms for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. It's interesting that he uses the word excellent for Felix. The only thing he was excellent at, as far as I can tell, is his gold digging skills. Uh, Felix was born a slave. Uh, and then what he did is he married very powerful women to move up the ladder. His first wife was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra, kind of a, a big name. So he marries her. He, he seduces her and somehow he marries her. Well, then that's not far enough to, up the ladder for him. So his second wife, he moves up the ladder a little bit more. And then his third wife, who is his wife um, in this story, was he lured her away. He, he kind of seduced her away from uh, her husband when she was 16 years old. Tells you a lot about this guy, Felix, that we're looking at. And she was the daughter of King Herod of Agrippa. So he just kept moving up the ladder by marrying power, more and more powerful women. So then, here's the principle that we can learn. This flattery. Felix is a bad guy. You can always find someone to agree with you even if you're wrong. I've heard people come into my office and for maybe marital counseling or any kind of counseling that seems to be decisions that they're about to make that are just horrible decisions for their life. And you know what? They always have someone who's agreed with them. Always. There's always someone telling them, yeah, you're right. You, you need to be that happy and you can be happier if you'll just leave her. Or, yeah, you're right. You, you need to quit your job before you ever find another one and make it really hard on someone else um, in your life. See, there's always someone who do, will agree with you, even if you're wrong. Don't be deceived by flattery. And, hey, are you a slick talker? Are you the Felix in this situation or the uh, Tertullus in this situation? If you are, you know it and you use it. But here's the deal. People will eventually see through all of your talk. They will, and you can use it only so many times before people go, hey, there comes Tertullus. He tells me whatever I want to hear. He butters me up. He gets me ready. But I can't believe anything that he says. See, people like Tertullus live through life through the same lens of the great philosopher Barney Stinson, who's on a, a show on TV right now. It says, a lie is just a great story that someone ruined with the truth. Did you catch that? A lie is just a great story that somebody ruined with the truth. Some of you live life that way. You think as long as, as, as I can use my words and I can flatter the right person and I can do the right thing, then, then I can move forward in life. And, and so you, you don't tell people the truth because, well, it's just not the best to tell them the truth. And see, don't you know that Felix knew that this was all a bunch of hot air? I mean, have you ever been on the other side of flattery where you know that the person is, is telling you that you're the greatest at something and you know you're really not, or they're telling you, you you've done something in an excellent way and you know you really haven't. But Felix loved it. See, it's our natural bent to, to want to hear from 
these people in our lives. And these are, there are people in your life right now that will tell you anything you want to hear. And the temptation is to go to these people to get permission and freedom for the things that you know are not wise in your life. The decisions that you want to make that you know are not the best decisions. You go, okay, I know who I can kind of cherry pick and I know who to go to on this one because they'll tell me what I want to hear. Those are dangerous people. Avoid a flatterer. Then we move on. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That's code word there. What he's saying is this guy is leading a cult. He's, he's got a little sect going on here. It's a, it's a cult. You need to worry about him, Felix. And the Roman's ears kind of perked up at this point because anyone who was going to bring this into the, the Roman world and kind of stir up things, they go, oh, wait a minute, That I really do need to hear this. And this is all lies. It's just nonsense. And he goes on in 6 uh, through 10 just to give a bunch of nonsense about Paul, things that Claudius had already found not to be true earlier, things that we see through the biblical account were already proven not to be true. He keeps going on and on about them. And then finally, once Felix has heard everything that Tertullus has to say, he nods his head at Paul and says, okay, Paul, your turn. And Paul's, here's Paul's reply. And I love the, the stark difference between Paul's reply and Tertullus' reply. He says, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make, I cheerfully make my defense. Notice that Paul didn't try to use flattery, but instead he simply states the truth. He says to Felix, Knowing that you've been a ruler here for a long time, I'm going to tell you, my defense. I mean, this is basically the equivalent of giving the, she has a great personality, uh, you know, explanation of a potential date for a friend of yours. If, if that's all you can say, I mean, that's the only thing you can say, that's not the best lead off for the, for the uh, talking about someone. And that's basically what he says is, hey, you've been a ruler for a long time. That's the best thing I've got to say about you. He obeyed the old antage. If you've got nothing uh, good to say, don't say anything at all. So Paul shows us something there. He doesn't cut him down. He doesn't push him down because he's trying to get to something. He's trying to get to a point where he can share the truth. And then in 11 through 21, verses 11 through 21, Paul stands up and he does what he has done already throughout this uh, last couple chapters. He stands up and he says, here is the truth. Here is the gospel. It's like Paul took every opportunity that he could get, any time he had it, to just hammer as many times as he could the truth. It, it was almost as if it had been just bored down and it had been deep into his soul and he had to tell this story. This story of Jesus Christ who had come and changed his life, who had come and rewritten everything we'd ever known about the world. And he tells this whole story again. He says, this is not about all these things that these guys are saying. What this is about is Jesus Christ who is crucified and then resurrected. And what they really have a problem with is Jesus. What these guys are really upset with is Jesus. And then he takes that opportunity to preach to the crowd there, but also to preach to Felix and tell him, this is the gospel. This is the truth that I want to tell you. So Paul sings the second verse, same as the first. And we hear basically the same gospel message preached that we've heard. And here's, this is the difficulty with kind of uh, looking through the last couple chapters of Acts. 
I did a lot of research on Acts over this whole series. And one of the things we found is that people uh, throughout the years and years have preached through Acts. And they kind of get stopped around 20 and 21. Chapter 20 and 21, they just kind of fall off. And then maybe they do one last message where they kind of just kind of bring everything together in the book of Acts. And the reason is, is over and over and over again, we see Paul preaching the same gospel message, just same truth. It doesn't change. He takes the opportunity every time he gets it in front of Romans, in front of the the Jewish leaders, in front of Felix, in front of Claudius, in front of whoever will listen to just continue to tell about Jesus. And I was thinking about it. I thought, isn't that how life really is? I mean, isn't that, that's how my life is. It's, it's, it's a series of opportunities over and over and over again. Some of the same issues, some of the same struggles, some of the same people who maybe are seen as your enemies. And it's over and over and over again, the opportunity to choose and make the wise decisions. And I think what the enemy of our soul would want is that if he can just kind of chip away at us, same issue over and over again, Same nagging thing in our brain over and over again. Same worries over and over again. Same thing that leads to depression over and over again. Same thing that leads to us feeling like we're not adequate over and over again. Just keep hitting us and we keep claiming the truth and we keep taking the opportunity to share the the gospel and the truth and we keep taking all these opportunities but he counts on that at some point we'll grow weary in doing good. At some point we'll choose our enemy hopes, religiosity over serving and being generous at some point he hopes we'll make the wrong decision the unwise decision and what we see in paul's life is that the reason that he had success is he stayed consistent over and over and over again and committed to the truth he didn't try to take up for himself he didn't even really try too much to to talk about his accusers every now and then he would slip into that just a little bit But for the most part, he just talked about Jesus and that truth. And I have to ask myself, is there something that that I believe in that much? Do I believe in this truth that much that I'll make those wise decisions over and over again in my life? But then moving on, after Paul shares this, this truth and he shares his story again to Felix, says, but Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, the way would be uh, what they called Christianity at that time, put them off saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. Here's a principle we learn again from Felix. It's often easier to procrastinate making the right decision. We see this as sort of being something that Felix seems to have struggle with in his life. He did it when Paul first showed up. Now he does it again. Rather than manning up, making a decision, Felix chooses the easy way out and says, hey, let's wait until the tribune gets here. And when they get here, tribune gets here. This is apparently going to take care of it then. And I'll just put it off. I won't make a decision right now. He procrastinates. Procrastination is opportunities assassin. You see, there are opportunities every day. See, God has orchestrated through His sovereignty and and that He's in charge of everything. He's orchestrated your life. He knows what steps you're going to take. He knows who you're going to see, who you're going to visit, where you're going to go. He's got this plan. And He brings us these opportunities. They may be little opportunities. They may be huge opportunities. But He brings them into our lives every single day. And procrastination, not wanting to make the right and wise decision 
at the time that it needs to be made will, will assassinate those good opportunities. The right decision is rarely the easiest decision to make. Rarely is. And the truth is, the wrong decision is not necessarily easy either. You know, I mean, with decisions, if you make this decision, either, either way you go, you're going to make someone mad most of the time. And so sometimes it feels like that we choose no decision and the opportunity to be used by God is lost. So Felix puts off making the right decision and he loses this opportunity. He loses this amazing opportunity. And that opportunity is the next principle that we can learn is that often people are brought into our lives by God so that we can add value to their lives. Felix has had two opportunities to make the right decision. And in doing so, Paul would have been set free and on his way to Rome a little earlier. In fact, in the first time, if he had just read Claudius' letter, said, hey, looks like I need to just let you go. There's no case here. Paul would have had a five-day head start on his enemies. He would have traveled. And he didn't make the right decision. He didn't man up and do what he needed to do. He had an opportunity to add value to someone else's life, to be there for them. He had an opportunity to do amazing things. I I wonder who has been brought into my life. Who was brought in there for such a time as this. Brought in there so that I could add value to their life. That God orchestrated us crossing paths. And that through some level of procrastination or just not being aware of what God was doing, I've missed the role that maybe God wanted me to play in their life. Like who has God brought into our lives for protection? Think about my role as a parent is to protect my children from themselves and from others until they are ready to face the world. And there is a protector. And I wonder how many times as a parent I don't take that opportunity like I should. See, they've, they've been brought into my life for protection. Generosity. Opportunities to be generous rather than greedy when people come into our lives. I know for me sometimes there's a struggle with choosing greed. And God gives me an opportunity to, to be generous to someone, to really to take advantage of the fact that God placed them into my life. Or hospitality. Do you see people coming over and staying with you or maybe dropping in unannounced as a disturbance and a nuisance rather than an opportunity? See, I do sometimes. I'm a high D driven personality and I'm an introvert. So basically I like to work is really hard and then go home and sit alone in the house and hum basically is what, what I do. And, and that's, I mean, you know, so people coming over, things getting into my life when I wasn't planning on it and didn't have it on my five-year plan. I mean, that really just kind of shakes me up. I mean, you, you know, and, and I have to ask myself, did God want me to be hospitable to them? Did he want me to be there for them? Maybe to offer a hand? I have to work on that. And then discipleship. I think about this from Felix. Here's this guy who we know is, is kind of a scoundrel. He's presented the truth. He's presented the gospel. And he has the opportunity to sit at the feet and be discipled. I mean, he, he could have made the right decision and let Paul go, but he, he could have sat at Paul's feet for what becomes two years that Paul is in his house. He could have sat there and learned from him. He could have sat at this theologian's feet, Paul, that met Jesus and, and said, teach me, teach me everything you know. And he didn't do that. He didn't have the wisdom to know that this guy had been brought in his life. And I wonder with our discipleship, we have opportunities to be taught by someone who maybe is older and wiser and maybe not so hip. But there's someone who can speak into our lives. If we'll just sit down with them and go, hey, tell me 
tell me what you've learned. Tell me about life. Tell me how you made it through all of these years of marriage because I've got to learn from you. Tell me how you raised your kids. See, we have these opportunities where people cross in our paths and we, we see them and we go, oh, oh, they're not like me. They're not, they're not like me, so I miss that opportunity. I wonder how often people have been sent into my life and I saw them as a problem rather than an opportunity. Moving into verse 23, it says, Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And when we read that, we think, oh, look, Felix has actually got a heart. But he really doesn't. This was kind of like a house arrest that was going on. Um, They didn't have prison systems like we have now where there's three square meals and a basketball court and direct TV on Wednesdays. I mean, they just didn't have that. So if Paul's friends can't attend to him, Paul starves. And Paul thirsts. There's no food. There's no drink. So basically saying, hey, let's put this guy in prison, give him some liberty, and let his friends take care of him. The, The kind of the bare essentials of what he would need for them to take care of him. And Felix hears the evidence and he makes the choice to hold Paul as what would kind of been the modern day equivalent of sort of an enemy combatant. It's a guy who's dangerous to this country, he decides. And in Roman rule, they could hold someone for two years without any case against them, without any verdict against them or anything. And so Felix goes, I don't want to make a decision. This is too hard. So let's uh, send Paul away and I'll, I'll put him in jail for two years. And rather than making the right decision... Felix just puts Paul away. And this had me, it's all, these kind of things always make me think. And, uh, you know, I shouldn't question God, but I do. I really do. I, I question him, and, and then, then he always teaches me through it. But I have a questioning spirit, and I think, God, what could Paul have done if he hadn't have been in prison? I mean, two years he sits in prison. What could Paul have done? What could he have done if he'd have made it to Rome earlier? Would he have gotten to make other trips? I mean, could he have championed the cause throughout more and more lands? Could he have done amazing things, God? Surely the best place for the greatest theologian who we've ever seen was not to be sitting in a prison. And then I'm reminded of principle number six. What men mean for evil, God uses for good. And I was reminded of this. Paul sat for two years, he wrote this little book called Ephesians. And then he wrote a letter to the Philippian church called Philippians. He wrote Colossians and Philemon. That's four that we know of. There's a very good possibility that he also wrote uh, the account that Luke is telling in Acts. Some scholars say that he came and visited with Paul some. He was one of those friends that maybe attended to him. And that possibly the stories that he's getting for Acts, he got during this time as Paul was sitting in prison. Are you, are you in a hard season of your life? I mean, a place where you're just kind of sitting? And you, you just don't know what to do? How can this season be used to honor God? I mean, what can you do? To, could you write someone a letter? I mean, maybe, maybe you could. It probably won't end up in the Bible, okay? I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. It's probably not going to happen. But could you write someone a letter, like a, a real handwritten letter? You know, we don't, I don't do those anymore. But a real handwritten letter and say, hey, this is what I appreciate about you. This is what I want to encourage you. Maybe you're out of work. In this economy, a lot of people still looking for jobs. And you go, and I've got talent. I've got skill. Why isn't God using me? I'm just sitting here. Why, why isn't God using me? Maybe you could work for free for an organization that you just believe in for just a while. Because you're talented. You're skilled. You're going to eventually work again. But you have this season, this opportunity where you could do something you may never get to do again. And just to serve and to be generous with your time. 
See, how can you allow God to be glorified in your circumstances rather than asking God to change your circumstances for your glory? That's the question I have to ask myself when I'm in those seasons where it feels like that God could be doing something better. So in verse 24, it says, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Principle number seven. You can always find a reason to tell God to go away. He calls Paul again. He says, hey, I want to hear your story again. I want to hear about God again. Tell me about Jesus again. And Paul does. And it says that Felix was alarmed. Some translations say he was scared. He was jolted. He was convicted. He heard the truth. It it processed. And he said, go away. I don't want to deal with it. I'll call you back when, when I feel like it. Uh, you know, I, don't call me, Paul. I'll call you, and, and, and I'll deal with it then. And I wonder how many of us have heard the truth. We've heard about God and heard about Jesus, and we just haven't been ready to say, yes, I'll commit. I mean, you just keep putting it off and saying, hey, for now, I just can't really get into this whole thing yet. I don't, I don't really have the time maybe to do it. Or maybe I'm, I'm just young. I'm too young. When I get in my 30s, then, then, I'll, then I'll start to kind of get serious about life a little bit. Or when I get married, God, then I'll, then I'll really hunker down and I'll commit. And then, or when I get children. Just give me some, because then I'll have somebody to really invest in. But then the children come and it's like, well, after they're toddlers, because toddlers are really hard. And so they wear me out. I don't have time for anything else but toddlers. And so when they get a little older, it's, well, but now we got all this stuff and kids have all this stuff. And so you've never taken the opportunity to go, God, I want a relationship with you. And that relationship's going to be, I spend time with you and I spend time serving the people you made because you love them and being generous to them. But we say, wait until... Wait until, wait until. But what it really boils down to is selfishness. Because look at what Felix's true heart was in verse 26. It says, At the same time, he, being Felix, hoped that money would be given by Paul, so he sent him often and conversed with him. So Felix goes, Hey, maybe Paul will bribe me. Maybe he'll give me some money, and, 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 and I'll take him up on this whole deal if he'll just give me money. And so he keeps sending for Paul to come back and tell him more of his story, more of his story. And I wonder for some of you, are you waiting to really commit to God to make sure there is not a better deal for you? Making sure there's not something better in life that can be offered. See, I can say this. I don't know all of you, but I love you enough to say, stop waiting and give your life over to God and learn from these mistakes that we see these guys making. Where they put God off and they don't find that life that I think all of us are looking for and we're looking for that opportunity to have God work in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you give us these opportunities Father, you bring opportunities into our life and so often, God, I know I see them as problems. So I pray that we would learn from this biblical story that, God, you brought them into our lives 
You're sovereign. You knew they were coming. And God, they're to shape us, to mold us, and to create in us a heart that's more like you. So God, I just, we thank you for the pain that's in our lives. We thank you for the opportunities to serve you more. We thank you for the places in our hearts that we have exposed as being dark so that, God, you can start to work in us and create in us a clean heart. Father, I thank you that we can learn from even the bad examples in your word and that, God, we can say at the end yes to you rather than go away. So, Father, I pray that you'd bless this time of response as we will be able to worship you and and respond to what you've had to say this weekend. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.